All right, good morning, church family. Once again, uh, as you uh, find your seats, if you would uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6. And this morning we're going to be in verses 30 to 44. Mark 6, 30 to 44. The title of the sermon this morning is What God Feels When He Sees Our Neediness. And so uh, let's read the text, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look at your word this morning and um, try to understand it and to apply it to our lives, would you uh, cause and send your Holy Spirit to awaken our minds and our hearts, our affections uh, to, uh, to who Jesus is, Help us to see your heart, God, through your son's heart. Help us to to see that um, what your son feels is what you feel. How your son would act is how you would act. Help us to to understand the father that you are through the son. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his life and giving us uh, visible, tangible evidence of what kind of God you are. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we get to the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. There's only one that makes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What was significant about this miracle? And why did God inspire all four Gospel writers to include it in their account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? My aim this morning is to show us that and why this miracle is significant. So we'll start off with the next position of the text. I'll go through it uh, verse by verse, and then I'll give application at the end of the exposition. So let's start off kind of an exposition to kind of explain the text. 
So we're all on the same page and then I'll give application. Starting in verse 30, Mark writes, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, two weeks ago, uh, I was, I was preaching. We saw that Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. And then Mark takes a pause in his narrative. And he takes a pause to insert this flashback story of John, John the Baptist, and he, to tell us how did John the Baptist die? We looked at that last week, but now Mark is going to return back to his story of the 12 disciples. The apostles return from their mission to Jesus. Now, this is, it's interesting that Mark calls them the apostles. This is actually one of the very few places in the Gospels where the disciples are called the apostles. Apostles means sent, sent ones. Now, we are told how long they are gone. We're, we're not sure how long they were gone, but when they get back to Jesus, they tell Jesus about everything that they had done and everything that they had taught. Look at verse 31. <clears throat> Jesus' response to them is he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now the pattern we see in the gospels is that Jesus is constantly doing ministry, but he always made space to get away and to rest. Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, desolate there usually refers to the wilderness or to a desert. Jesus uh, wants to bring them away. They need solitude. They need rest. Jesus needs solitude. Jesus needs rest. They are so busy with ministry that they don't even have time to eat. This is the same detail that Mark gave us in chapter 3, verse 20. This is now the second time where they've been so busy with ministry they don't even have time to eat. Look at verse 32 to 33. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the way that Jesus wants to to withdraw is that he has them get into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to sail off to a desolate place. There's only one problem. The crowds see him get into a boat. So what do they do? They run around the sea. Now, most likely Jesus is, you know, not sailing way out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Probably he's just kind of going along the coast, looking for a desolate place. And the crowds see him and they're like, well, they don't have a boat. They're like, well, we can, we can just run there. So that's what they do. They run on foot to get there ahead of them. The crowds get to Jesus's destination before him. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He is seeking solitude. He's seeking rest. So how is he going to feel when he gets to the shore and he sees that the crowd is there? What is Jesus going to feel when he realizes he's not going to get solitude? He's not going to get rest. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, as Jesus and the disciples, they bring their boat ashore, Jesus notices that the crowd is there. How does he feel in this moment? You know, you, you ever like, you just need to get away? You need, you need space and time and just, you need to be by yourself. You need rest. 
And all of a sudden you realize he, he can't get it. How does he feel? Is he exasperated? Is he irritated? Is he frustrated? Is he annoyed? Is he bitter? Does he feel pestered? No. He sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. This term compassion means to feel pity or to feel sympathy. It can also mean to feel great affection. And it's, it's an important term because it means that when Jesus saw the crowd, he felt something for them. He was not indifferent to them. He felt something for them. He's not even neutral towards them. He actually feels sympathy. He feels affection for this crowd. He looks at this crowd. He looks at the people in this crowd who have run there ahead of him, who have uh, subverted his plans, and he does not see a nuisance to him. He sees sheep. And he sees sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't see people who are standing in his way to eat. He sees sheep that need to be fed. And so that's what he does. He feeds them spiritually. He began to teach them many things. Jesus needs to eat. The man needs to eat. The disciples need to eat. And yet he recognizes these sheep need spiritual food more than he needs physical food right now. Jesus' compassion is greater than his physical desires. Look at verse 35 to 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now I want you to notice this phrase, when it grew late. That's an important phrase. Why? Because it means that it wasn't as though Jesus got on the shore, gave them a quick five minute sermon, appeased the crowds and then said, all right guys, let's go get some food. When he got on shore, he taught them, he ministered to them, and he ministered to them until it grew late. And so his disciples come to him and they give him counsel. You know, it's always entertaining when humans try to give God counsel. They come to him and they say, this is a desolate place. And, and listen, the people need to get food. Tell them to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy some food. Now, is Jesus going to take their counsel? Is Jesus going to be like, that's a good idea. Yeah, like, I'll tell him. What's he going to do? Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Don't you love it when Jesus says things like this? I love the statements of Jesus. They're, they're, I mean, they're just so unexpected. The you here in Greek is emphatic. In other words, in Greek, you don't have to put the pronoun there. It can be carried by the verb. And yet when the, ver when the pronoun is given, it's emphatic. The way that we say this in our languages is like if somebody said, if they came to him and they said, Lord, who's going to feed them, Lord? And he says, you. You give them something to eat. That's what it means to be emphatic. I wonder what was the look on the disciples' face when Jesus said this? What was the look on their face? 
The disciples replied, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Now Philip said in John 6, 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for them to get a little. Here's, here's what I find interesting. Do they even have 200 denarii? Like, do they have it with them? You see, they're still thinking in earthly terms. Even though Jesus has cast out demons, he's healed a man's shriveled hand. He's healed people of every disease. He's raised a little girl from the dead. He has turned water into wine. They are still thinking in earthly terms. Now, what's ironic about Jesus's command, you give them something to eat, is that that is exactly what they are going to do. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Now notice, Jesus doesn't even address their question. Often when people ask, you know, bad questions of Jesus, he just ignores the question altogether. He says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So the disciples walk through the crowd and they see what food people had on hand. Now it appears not many people brought their lunch to school this day. But one boy did. John tells us that there was a, a boy there who had five barley loaves and two fish. Now, these barley loaves would have been fairly small. This is not like the size of a loaf of bread like we get in the grocery store. These would be small, like almost like rolls, if you will. Uh, and these fish, it's not like two giant salmon. These would have been like sardines. This is a little boy here, right? This would have been like sardine size. This, this is this little boy's lunch or dinner. Now, I want to jump ahead in the story. And look at verse 44 for just a minute. Look at verse 44. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. There are 5,000 men in this crowd. Now, the Greek term for men here is not the normal word for people, which is a collective plural. It is a gender-specific term, which means the term does not include women and children. So it's very likely that this number is somewhere between five and 10,000 people. There are 5,000 men, five to 10,000 people counting women and children. Now I've heard of frugal families making food stretch, but this is a bit of a stretch. Five small barley loaves, two sardines for five to 10,000 people. How is that going to work? Look at verse 39 to 41. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. So Jesus tells the crowd to sit down in groups, groups of hundreds and groups of fifties. Jesus takes the, the five loaves into his hands, takes the two fish into his hands. He looks up to heaven and he said a blessing. And what does it mean he said a blessing? Two possibilities. Either A, it means to invoke God's blessing upon the food, which in this case would mean to supernaturally bless it. He's asking God to supernaturally bless this food. We'll see what that is in just a minute. Or it could mean to give thanks to God to praise God for the food. Either are possible, either are possible by this term. 
Now, one side note, if you're wondering, is this where we get the idea of saying a blessing before a meal? It is. This is why we say, when people say, let's say the blessing, right? This is why we do this, because this is what Jesus did before he ate. After the blessing, he breaks the loaves, he gives it to the disciples to pass out to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. Now, if you're wondering, how did that work? Uh, my boys were wondering this the other day. We're reading through the Old Testament and we're reading the story about Elisha and the widow's oil. Remember when he tells her, tells her to go buy all these jars and then pour oil into the jars and, and it just doesn't run out. And they, they were wanting to know, like one of my sons asked me, like, how did that work? Like, like, did he empty the jar and then it just replenished like video games? Like, like, did, like, how did, how did that work? My short answer is, I don't know. My guess in that story is that he poured and he just never stopped pouring. And so it's like jar, jar, and it just, it just never stopped. It, when did it stop? When they ran out of jars. Good thing they got a lot of jars. My guess is that as Jesus broke this bread and broke the fish and put it in their baskets to pass out, it just never went down. Like they took out a piece and every time they took out a piece, it just, the bread never went down. It just, it just stayed full in the basket. That's my guess. I don't know how this worked. I don't, you know, that or, I mean, I guess he could have spoke to it and just, there was five, there was like, there was a mountain of bread and a mountain of fish. I don't know. But somehow he multiplied the bread and the fish. Look at verse 42 to 43. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Now, how many of them ate? How many, church family? All. All of them ate. All five to 10,000 of them ate. Mark writes, they were all satisfied. Now, that word satisfied literally means to eat one's Fill. Yeah, you know that feeling when you've eaten and you've eaten so much, you're like, oh, I'm full. I can't eat another thing. Right? No, grandma, no. Uh, I can't eat anymore. Everyone had that feeling. Afterwards, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish and, and uh, bread and fish. 12 baskets. Why 12? I think it's maybe one basket for each disciple. Each disciple brought back a full basket full of bread and fish. Not only did they get full, they have leftovers. We'll stop there with the exposition. Application of the text. How do we apply this story to our life? I have seven points of application for us this morning. Here they are. Number one. If Jesus needed space for solitude and rest, how much more do we? If Jesus needed space for solitude and rest, how much more do we? You know, one of the things that I love about God becoming a human is that we get to see Jesus' weakness. We get to see him take on our human weakness. He is fully God and yet as a human, he needs solitude. He needs rest. 
Now, we've already seen this in Mark 135, where rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. If the Son of God needed solitude and rest, how much more do we? Moms need solitude and rest from their children. Dads, moms need solitude and rest from their children. Or maybe the dad does, I don't know. But parents need solitude and rest from their children. Students need solitude and rest from their studies. It is not good to be studying all the time. You need solitude and rest from your studies. Ministers need solitude and rest from their congregants. Employees need solitude and rest from their work. It is not good to work seven days a week, 24-7, to always be on the clock. We all need solitude and rest for two reasons. Number one, because we are human. We're humans. We're not machines. We're not robots. I, I know that like, you know, maybe some universities or some professors think you're a robot. Maybe, maybe Amazon thinks you're a robot. But we're not. We're humans. We need solitude. We need rest. And second reason, because life is hard. I mean, isn't it, isn't, isn't life hard? Who goes through this life without dealing with the difficulties of this life? You know, Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew, Matthew makes a connection here. And I think it's interesting. Matthew writes, now when Jesus heard about John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Matthew seems to suggest that the death of John had an impact on Jesus. Remember, John was his cousin. John is his baptizer. John is the one who prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus is not immune from the effects of ministry, from the effects of sin. Yes, it was not the Father's will to rescue John, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was like, hmm, we got work to do. No. He needed solitude. I imagine as a human, he needed to process the, this reality that, that sin existed and that, it, that it, it, it took John's life. We all need solitude. We all need rest. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, carve out time in your life to be alone, to be at rest. Even if it's just like two hours a week, Find a, carve out that time where, and, and let, turn your phone off. Turn your laptop off. Go out into nature. Go to a coffee shop. Read your Bible. Just sit and look at a wall and meditate. Like, but carve out time. We all need solitude and rest. And let me just say, listen, if you think you don't have time for this, you don't have time for those two hours, you're doing something wrong. Because Jesus needed this, and he was perfect. Nobody was busier than Jesus. Nobody. Two. Ministry is demanding, and always will be. Ministry is demanding, 
and always will be. I give this point because I think sometimes we, we want ministry to not be so demanding. We want it to be at a certain level. And the reality is, is that ministry is demanding and it always will be. Jesus got into a boat to get away from the crowds. But the people won't let him get away. They see him get into the boat. They run on foot to get there ahead of him. Jesus is constantly bombarded by the people's needs. Ministry is demanding and it always will be. And the reality is, Nothing can really prepare you for this. There are no classes that teach you how to care for a marriage that is falling apart at 2 a.m. They don't teach you that. There are no classes that teach you how to care for a relationship breakup when it's been going on for five years. There are no classes that teach a parent how to deal with their child being diagnosed with cancer or how to minister to a parent whose child is diagnosed with cancer. Mark writes that Jesus and the disciples, they didn't even have time to eat. The Apostle Paul describes his ministry as toil, hardship, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Now listen, we may not experience that extreme. You know, maybe we're not going through hunger and thirst and, and cold exposure. But listen, how many of you parents have gone without sleep? Now, when we, I say this, parenthood is a ministry. You are ministering to your child. You are the primary shepherd of your child. In case you didn't know that, it's not me. I'm not the primary shepherd of your child. You are. You are the primary shepherd of your child. How many of you parents have gone without sleep, both when your kid was two months old and when they were 22 years old? How many of you parents have gone without sleep? How many of you disciplers have stayed up late at night giving counsel, pouring out your soul to a brother or sister who is wrestling with heartache? How many times do you finally have a day off, you sit down on the couch, and the phone rings? Hey man, can you help me move something? Yes. Ministry is demanding, and it always will be. The sooner we accept this, the easier it will be. If you are waiting for ministry to not be demanding, parents, if you're waiting for parenthood to not be demanding, if you, uh, disciplers, if you're waiting for the person you're discipling to not, that ministry to not be demanding, if you are waiting for that, you'll have to keep waiting. Ministry is demanding. It always will be. And yes, for anybody who needs to hear it, it is unbelievably rewarding. In case you need to hear the other side of that coin. Number three. Jesus is given to us as a visible, tangible example of what God feels when he sees our neediness. Jesus is given to us as a visible, tangible example of what God feels when he sees our neediness. 
As Jesus finally finds a desolate place, I imagine as he's sailing along the shore, he's got a perfect spot fixed. You know, maybe he had been there before. Maybe he's got, I know this perfect spot where we can get away. Nobody will bother us there. As he steps out of the boat onto the shore, all of a sudden coming out of the, the trees or coming around the corner, there's the crowd. And as he sees this crowd, and again, this is not a small crowd. This is 5,000 men crowd. 10,000 people. What did he feel in that moment? Like, what did he feel? I can tell you what I would sinfully feel. I can, this is what I would sinfully feel. I need a break. I, I, I've taught you guys enough. I've already taught you guys. I have already healed you. Didn't I heal all of you? Y'all need to pull it together. Guys, pull it together. That's not what Jesus feels. That's not what Jesus feels. Praise God, that's not what Jesus feels. What did he feel when he saw these needy people? He only felt one thing. He felt compassion. Mark 6.34 has got to be one of the most important verses in the Gospels because it tells us what does God feel when he sees our neediness. And this is, here's why this is important. Because in most contexts in life, this is not how it works. This is not what people feel. Right? You, you, know, you need help with your schoolwork. And sometimes parents grow impatient with how much help their child needs. Right? Your child is, needs, is potty training, learning to tie their shoes, learning to walk, learning how to just to keep the food on the plate. Right? Sometimes parents can grow impatient with how much help their child needs. You need help with your project at work. And, and your boss grows frustrated at your lack of competency. You can see it on their face, right? You're constantly asking your boss and you can see that he's, he or she is frustrated with you, that you need so much help with this project. You need help with relationship advice. And your friend kind of grows a little bitter at your loneliness. Now, here's what happens. We take these contexts that we all have experienced and we bring them to God. And we recognize that we are so needy. We recognize, man, I'm constantly asking God for help with this. I'm constantly asking God for help with that. And, and here's, here's the danger, is we can begin to believe the lie that, uh, that God thinks we're pathetic. I feel that way sometimes. Sometimes I feel so pathetic that I need so much help. It might even cross my mind, like, what, what, maybe God thinks I'm pathetic. Like, maybe God's up in heaven, and I'm coming to him for help, and God's like, what's wrong with you, Matt? You messed up again? Seriously? Like, didn't you just do this yesterday? Didn't you just say this yesterday? You gotta, again? You're pathetic, man. This is why Jesus is such a precious gift. He is such a precious gift 
because he shows us that's not what God feels at all when he sees our neediness. That's not what he feels at all. Jesus saw the crowds. He saw their neediness and he felt one thing. Compassion. Jesus is given to us as a visible, tangible example of what God feels when he sees our neediness. Do not think that your father is tired of you being so needy. I would posit it probably goes the other way around. He is tired of you not being needy enough. He delights for you to come to him with your needs. He has compassion on you. That's what he feels. Four, Jesus demonstrated how to count others more significant than yourselves and to look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Jesus demonstrated for us how to count others more significant than yourselves and look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. You know, sometimes we come across these verses in scripture where the concept is so challenging that it's hard to know what it looks like. Philippians 2, 3 to 4 is one of those passages. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Now, when you read that, it's like, what does that practically look like? That, that, that looks so difficult to do. What does it look like? And Jesus demonstrates for us. Jesus gives us in the flesh a demonstration of what this looks like. When Jesus got ashore, his compassion, right? So he feels compassion, but his feelings of compassion, it does not stop at the threshold of his emotions. It led to his actions. He went ashore and he began to teach them many things. He even taught them until it grew late. Remember, he's trying to eat. He's trying to, to rest. Mark says that why they're getting away is because they have no leisure to eat. You ever been hungry? And something or someone was standing in the way of you and your food? You ever been tired? And something or someone was standing in the way of you and your bed? This crowd is standing in the way of Jesus and His food. This crowd is standing in the way of Jesus and His solitude and His rest. And yet, and yet, Jesus counted others more significant than His own personal needs. Jesus looked not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And he went ashore and taught them. If you want to see a perfect picture of humility, look to the Son of God. Five. Jesus moves our focus away from the natural to the supernatural from our insufficiency to his sufficiency. Jesus moves our focus away from the natural to the supernatural, away from our insufficiency to his sufficiency. 
when the disciples came to Jesus, they told him, they said, send them away that they may go buy themselves something to eat. And then Jesus responds with, you give them something to eat. Now, I would love to know what was the look on their face. Like, did their jaw drop, you know, like. What was going through their head? The question that they asked Jesus, it's an interesting one. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Again, is that a rhetorical question? Do they have 200 denarii? That's that's almost a a year's worth of wages. See, the disciples are still thinking in the natural realm. All they can see is empty stomachs, and they forget about the one who had turned water into wine. Even when Jesus tells them to go and see what they can find, they come back with five barley loaves and two fish. John records Andrew's words. Andrew says, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Did you catch that? What are they? You see, Andrew's focus is on the insufficiency of the bread rather than the sufficiency of the living bread. Often all we can see is the natural and Jesus turns our focus to the supernatural. Often all we can see is our insufficiency and Jesus turns our focus to his sufficiency. You see, we come to the table of life. This thing called life, this table called life. We come to this table and we bring our five loaves. We bring our two fish and we say, as Andrew said, what are they? What are they? You see, the question is never, what are they? The question is, who is he? That's the question. Jesus doesn't need a buffet of food. He is the buffet. Six. Jesus cares not only about our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. And Jesus cares not only about our physical needs, but also our spiritual needs. Jesus cares not only about our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. And Jesus cares not only about our physical needs, but also our spiritual needs. Now, I intentionally worded the point redundantly because I find that in the kingdom of God, sometimes there is this dichotomy between churches and parachurches, where parachurches meet the physical needs of people and churches meet the spiritual needs of people. And sometimes Christians have been guilty of creating this bifurcation. But we clearly see that Jesus cared not only for their spiritual needs, but also their physical needs. And Jesus cared not only for their physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. You see, Jesus, he could have gone ashore. He could have taught the people, met their spiritual needs, and then sent them home. Did exactly what the disciples said. I've taught you. I've spiritually fed you. Now you guys go find some food. He could have done that. And Jesus could have gone ashore, fed the people, went ashore and realized, man, these people need food. I need food. 
and met their physical needs and then sent them home. But he does neither or. He does both and. He teaches them. He feeds them spiritually. And he multiplies the fish and the loaves. He feeds them physically. Now I point this out because for some, God is a food bank. And for others, God is a seminary professor. For some, God is a food bank. And for others, God is a seminary professor. And the reality is, God is neither because He is both. For those who would turn God into a food bank, we must remember that Jesus fed them spiritually before He fed them physically. And for those who would turn God into a seminary professor, we must remember that God cares about our stomachs in addition to our minds. Jesus shows us that God cares about both our spiritual needs and our physical needs. Number seven, last point. Jesus fully satisfies us and then some. Jesus fully satisfies us and then some. You know, it's easy to understand why Jesus did many of his miracles, right? Like healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. You know, those miracles all make sense to me. They all make sense to me. Um, people need to be you know, healed. They need demons cast out, raising the dead. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus turn water into wine? Like, why did he do that? Why did Jesus multiply the fish and the loaves? So they ran out of wine at the wedding. Okay, drink water. So they don't, they need food. Go buy food. Do exactly what the disciples said. Go buy food. Why did he do these kinds of miracles? I think it is this. I think it is to point us to the reality that Jesus fully satisfies us and then some. You see, when Jesus turned the water into wine, it wasn't some cheap gas station wine. The master of the feast said, you have kept the good wine until now. See, normally you serve the good wine first, and then people are too drunk to notice the cheap wine. But he kept the good wine until now. You see, God had given his people wine in the Old Testament. But God kept the good wine, Jesus Christ, until now. And when Jesus fed the people, they all ate and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of bread and fish left over. God had fed his people in the Old Testament. He did. But he waited for his son, Jesus Christ, to fully satisfy them. And then some. You know that feeling when you've had the best meal of the year? Right? Like maybe you go out or somebody cooks it for you, but like you eat and you're like, oh man, that was by far the best meal I've had all year long. You know that feeling? I mean, it's a good, it's a good feeling, right? You walk away thinking, man, that was good. I, I could eat there every day. I could come over to your house and eat at your cooking every day. That's what Jesus is supposed to feel like. That's what Jesus is supposed to feel like. 
I could come to Him every day. Because He fully satisfies. And then some. And listen, listen. We haven't even gotten to dessert yet. God has saved His very best for last. We'll get there. Let's pray.